Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? My name is Josh Herring. My name is Ethan Delves. And together we are here to uh, carry on the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. Today we're going to be doing a second episode on the September-October Lincoln-Douglas resolution. Ethan, what's the res? The resolution is in a democracy. No. Yes. Yes. In a democracy, compulsory voting should be mandatory. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's right. Uh, today, we are joined on the call by a distinguished guest. Uh, we have Dr. Coyle Neal, who is an assistant professor at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri, on the show. Uh, Dr. Neal is a political scientist, and uh, he is also the host of the City of Man podcast on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Neal, thanks for joining us on the show. I'm sorry, I just got your name wrong. Coyle, thank you for joining us on the show. That's okay. It comes from having a, uh, a last name for a first name and a first name for a last name. So you can you can blame my parents for that. Uh, you're, you're, you're a gentleman and a scholar, really, in this case. Yeah, I'm, I'm not that distinguished, though. I should modify your introduction a little bit. Um, I'm also not really that kind of political scientist. I, I, I have to put out there up front, uh, voting behavior is not my area of expertise. So uh, uh, don't hold anything I say against me. Uh, we, we certainly won't. I mean, I, I, one of the reasons I enjoy listening to your show is because I think it's so much more conversational than the typical political scientist often gets. I mean, I... I don't really care about the intricacies of one to two point leads in polling data. I'm much more interested in what is the good that the city should actually be seeking. And that tends to be the sort of conversation you enjoy having, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do care about the you know polling data, just just not enough to want to do that professionally. <laughs> it's uh, That totally works. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like math. I, I like math well enough. I just don't want to do it for the rest of my life. So, you know. No. Uh, well, Coyle, do tell us a little bit more about yourself. I know we, we've, uh, uh, correct me if, uh, or clarify what I said a little bit. Tell us what you're teaching. Uh, help us know a bit about your specialty. And uh, do tell us about your show as well before we get into our stuff. <laughs> well, all those, all those disclaimers given, uh, and now I, now I have to, uh, to undermine those. I, I do teach American government institutions uh, because we're a, we're a small university. There, there are only two uh, political scientists here. Uh, so my colleague does international stuff uh, and I do, I do uh, American uh, government. So presidency, uh, Supreme Court, Congress, and state and local are sort of my, my core classes. Uh, with all of that said, my, my training is actually in political philosophy. So uh, I, uh, I did my dissertation originally on Jonathan Edwards uh, and uh, have, uh, have since, since finishing grad school basically focused on the ancient world and ancient political philosophy uh, in my spare time. Uh, I, don't, I, I mostly teach, so that's, uh, 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 I focus on institutions in my teaching and, and kind of the, the philosophical side of things in, uh, in my research as much as I have time for research. Uh, and then what was the uh, what was the other question that you asked oh, me? Uh, yeah, tell us a bit about the City of Man. What, what's your show? Oh yeah, yeah. So the uh, the City of Man podcast. Uh, we are we are part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, uh, which uh, which is one of the uh, the oldest uh, networks out there uh, in podcast land. Uh, it's not the oldest, uh, but it's it's certainly old in internet terms. Um, I will say if, if your listeners aren't listening to the Christian Humanist podcast, they are missing out. Uh, if, if you listen to anything on the network, it should be that. Uh, uh, City of Man, I think we're fine. I think we do a good job. But I think the, the uh, Christian Humanist is, is the one you should be listening to. Uh, we're we're kind of down the totem pole on the, uh, on the, on the network. 
Network. Uh, we're the the political uh, the the political show. Uh, there's a there's a feminist show. There's an environmentalist show. Uh, there's a, there's one that focuses on pop culture. I mean, it's it's a pretty pretty broad network. Uh, but the uh, the the one everyone ought to listen to is the flagship show, the, the Christian Humanist Podcast. That sounds awesome. So it's it's this entire group of different subcategories, I guess, is what you're saying. Yeah, there, there are multiple shows on the same network, and you have different hosts for all of those. Uh, yeah. Okay, and that's cool. So, what do you? What is your? I guess like main focus on the City of Man podcast. What are what are your, most of your or your typical episodes look like? Uh, well, uh, we we actually just lost uh, our co-host. So originally, when we started, it was a conservative and a liberal uh, evangelical talking about politics of the day uh, from kind of a philosophical perspective. Uh, we've uh, we've lost our liberal. Uh, so uh, for for right now, uh, we're kind of working through a back catalog and and occasionally hitting contemporary issues uh, while. Uh, while kind of reorienting and trying to decide which direction we want the show to go. So uh, uh, we're, we're in a holding pattern is the answer to your question right now. So you're looking for a liberal to... Uh, a a theologically conservative, uh, uh, a theologically conservative, politically liberal, philosophically informed individual. Let me know when you find someone and... Um, <laughs> I found one once. Uh, inter- do you have interviews? Like, do you interview people before they're going to become the co-host? Like, is there like a, a system for... Uh, yeah, um, I'm, I'm not the final say on that. So I'm, I'm not the, uh, the, the fight. Cause again, there's a, there's a network and I, I, I have people I answer to and so on, but, uh, uh, yeah, uh, there, there is a search process ongoing. It, it's uh, we're, we're kind of looking for a unicorn, uh, but they, they do uh, exist. Yeah. I mean, that is a really, Ed, that is a unique person. And, and honestly, I, I, I enjoyed Ed's song because I think he sincerely hit a lot of those, uh, and, so I, I, I love the dynamic tension you guys had on the show for, for most of the, you know, his tenure there. Uh, and I, though I did find myself wanting him sometimes, I don't know, I've, I've wanted for years that I've wanted the left to be able to make more sound arguments. And I, I sometimes brought that expectation to Ed's half of the show. And I, well, I mean, I, I liked having him on in part because as a, as a, as Michael Farmer of the Christian Humanist podcast says, uh, Ed didn't put up with my BS, and I, you know, I, I need that. Uh, that's that's important. Uh, but yeah, uh, so so for right now, uh, the the goal is not to just have this become the you know Coy O'Neill's political views show. Uh, so to try to find someone to, to offer counterpoints to whatever issues uh, uh, we're dealing with, uh, it's easier when we're dealing with texts, right? Because you're dealing with the text and uh, the varying perspectives on Aristotle matter, but not as much as talking about Aristotle. So. I can't imagine any of this is interesting to your listeners. Honestly, I, I, I suspect think, yeah. it might be because, I mean, we are a debate resolution analysis show. So, I mean, I anyone who's listened to our show for more than an episode knows that I'm ridiculously conservative and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm over there in that traditionalist, Burkean, Russell Kirk tradition. Uh, and uh, Ethan is a and little then, more centrist than I am, but not terribly. I just so. don't put up with your BS, like I, I, like <laughs> like his. And I, I I don't I wouldn't say that I particularly lean liberal, but I most of my friends are liberal, so then I try to oh, yeah. you know speak give them a little voice well, in the podcast. As well. Really, I mean, a lot of what we do, I mean, we we try. Our audience is not really looking for necessarily. I wouldn't say they're usually they're usually not looking for truthful answers to the resolution. They're looking for what are the arguments on multiple sides of the resolution? Right. And what are different angles we can take? So often we will present arguments that we think are technically very interesting, but are not necessarily truthful about the world. Uh, and that's just kind of part and parcel 
we're, we're a little bit of a, I, I, I like to think of this as a truthful sophist project. If, if you right. have such a thing. And you, on that Medicare episode that we just did, we were, so the resolution, uh, Mr. Neil, for your like, reference was about enacting the Medicare for all 2019 bill. And um, he You're was a little late on that one, aren't you? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's going to be a resolution. So I, I guess uh, like, Bernie can't die, man. We got to have Bernie come back. I get, yeah, I guess we're back. And, um, and Josh was just going off, like refuting this entire, he read the entire thing, even though it was really boring. He read most I, I of read the entire a third thing. of it. I couldn't, he I, read I a third of it. Sleep reading it. I had to, I had to press to defend Bernie so hard on that episode. I was like, please, the drug companies, like something's got to be there. <laughs> So all that to say, I, I think the idea of a show that is intentionally trying to kind of force the dialectic, if you will, is something that our listeners would find uh, to be engaging and, and intriguing. Um, so uh, on that note, let's uh, let's get into it. I, I wanted to get your thoughts first, uh, maybe a more an ancient question than a uh, maybe an unanswerable question. But uh, uh, Coyle, what exactly is a democracy? And uh, does what role, if any, does voting uniquely play in a democracy? Yeah, uh, it's a it's in, in some ways it's obviously a slippery term. You know, if you look at ancient Athens and compare it to modern America, there, there's there, there's not really any real parallel there. Uh, there there are such radically different places uh, uh, that you can't really do a one to one comparison of the political systems. Uh, but in another sense, we also we all know what we mean when we say democracy. Right, uh, uh, so it, it really depends on what spirit you're you're, you're having the conversation. The, the short version is, uh, at the end of the day, the the source of authority and legitimacy in the government is the people. Right, that's uh, that that's that's what a democracy is. Uh, and and uh, democratic thinkers, uh, you know, make make the case that really every government is a democracy uh, in that sense. Uh, and and the governments that doesn't that that don't reflect that in their institutions are states that are in need of reformation, right? So, so uh, if you have an absolute monarchy, well, that, that king's power still comes from the people. Uh, that, that king's authority, that king's legitimacy still comes from the, the people, uh, but the, the institutions aren't in line with the reality on the ground. So uh, short version is uh, it's, it's the, the kind of government where, uh, uh, where it's the, the kind of government where the source of authority is the people. Slightly longer version is it's the, the sort of nation where that's actively reflected in existing political institutions. Uh, and the, the, the tool for modern democracies is representation. All right, uh, with, uh, with the exception of things like state initiatives and town meetings, for the most part, we as a people don't directly vote on laws. Uh, we vote for congressmen, state legislators, uh, city councilmen to do our, our governing for us with the understanding that their power comes from us, uh, their authority comes from us, and we have a say in who fills those offices. We, we get to pick who, uh, who fills those governing offices. Uh, as opposed to, uh, which I, I think this is one of your questions for later, as opposed to ancient Athens, uh, where the, the governing body was the people. Laws were passed when the, the citizens gathered together and voted, uh, you know, yes or no on a given law. Uh, uh, government officials, uh, there were a couple of offices that were elected. Uh, the Athenians would sort of freely admit that they cheat. Uh, offices where it matters if you're literate and know how to do math, uh, those were elected offices. Uh, so general and treasurer and that sort of thing were, were elected. Uh, everything else uh, was chosen by lot. So uh, what, what's the most democratic means of selection? Well, in a democracy, any citizen ought to be able to do any job. So put a bunch of names in the hat, pull a name out, and there's your, there's your president for the year. Uh, it, it worked about as well as it sounds, uh, uh, which, is, which is why those elected offices kind of become more and more important as time goes on. 
So if you think about the, the great names uh, in, uh, in Athenian politics, uh, they're either orators, uh, so people who can sway the, the assembly of people onto their side, uh, or their generals, uh, who, people who have expertise and, and the, the assembly was generally willing to listen to. Uh, Lots more that could be said there, but again, uh, want to keep this as good radio. So, uh, uh, yeah. uh, did that answer your question? I, I, think, I think that was a great yeah. like, I, and I guess yeah, like I, like you said at the beginning, democracy is difficult to come with, up with maybe like a one or two sentence definition. But that explanation honestly was great, and and but I do have a question about it because something you said in there that I wasn't expecting. It was really interesting. If how can like you gave the example of an absolute monarchy. Right. How can an, a democracy exist where the power of the people is not reflected in the institution? Like, if that's the defining factor of a democracy. Right. Right. So, so again, uh, and and maybe that was maybe I was getting digging a, a little too deep into into the sort of uh, uh, philosophical arguments there. But the the idea is where where does the king get that that authority? So if you if you go back and read you know Thomas Hobbes or John Locke, uh, not not pure democratic theorists, but but clearly moving in that direction, uh, they'll they'll say, look, it, it comes from the people. What what happens? if the people get up one morning and say, I'm not listening to this guy anymore, right? Uh, uh, that, that king's power is over. Uh, that, that's, that's the end of that rule and something else is going to fill that place. Now, now again, the, uh, uh, we, we use the word democracy to include both that and the states where the institutions are, are structured uh, to be more reflective of the people, uh, more responsive to what the people want than an absolute monarchy. Uh, but again, that king's power still comes from somewhere, uh, and either we're going to take kind of the the medieval divine right of kings route uh, and say this is this is from God, or we're going to be good modern small l liberals and say yeah that even even that absolute monarch's power comes from the people. Right, because the people are either the power comes directly from the people, or the people are allowing that yep. ruler to have power. Your okay. your consent is what makes that king have power. Yeah, that, that, that's the, the frontispiece in, in Hobbes, where he's got yep. the Leviathan. The, the king is literally, it's, I, I love the image as a picture of the early modern body politic idea. Like, but the king is literally composed of all the faces of the people. And so in that sense, the king's authority is made up of the implicit consent of all the governed. And if I remember correctly, Hobbes's argument is that the king is not particularly good. In fact, the king is often quite terrible, but he's way better than the alternative, which is sheer anarchy. And so we consent together to live under this world where a king can take your property, can take your children, can tax you to death and all this stuff. But that's better than 5,000 neighbors all being able to do the same thing. Right. Yeah, I mean Hobbes is. We we don't even have to go to to Hobbes's terrible, you know, uh, uh, sovereign to to get that. We see the same thing in Locke, uh, in sort of a softer, gentler version. Uh, or you can even jump to some of the uh, the middle of the twentieth century American political scientists, people like uh, uh, Louis Hartz. You know, the the liberal tradition in America makes functionally the same argument, albeit in a you know 1950s American context, right? Our our government gets its authority from the people. In, in the same way that Hobbes' sovereign gets its authority from the people. That makes, yeah, that makes sense to me. And I guess to kind of take that into, or to narrow the topic area a little bit, how would you say that voting, and then I guess it's the second half of the question, compulsory voting fits into a democracy? Where's, where's the place for it there in the context of that explanation you just gave us? 
Yeah, so so voting uh, is is again that's that's the way you show what you want uh, in a democracy. Uh, that, that's how you you demonstrate uh, uh, in our in our context who we think should be in power. Uh, in you know the Athenian context or the New England town meeting context, uh, you vote directly on the laws. Uh, so there's uh, uh, there, there's uh, it's it's the means of expressing uh, uh, the the will of the people or the will of whatever group of people you're talking about. Uh, compulsory voting. I, I wish I knew more about this. Uh, so I know uh, ancient Athens had a form of compulsory voting. Uh, you were expected to go vote. Uh, realistically, lots of citizens didn't live in Athens. Uh, the, the army was out in the field. You know, that'd be most of your citizens gone. Uh, but uh, they, they did have it. Uh, if you were in town and available, you were expected to be there. They even had a means of enforcing it. So they had uh, state-owned slaves whose job it was to take a, a long piece of rope that had been dyed red uh, and go through the marketplace with that rope. And if you got red, ro- uh, red on your tunic, you were fined for not being at the assembly voting. Uh, so no, I didn't know that. That's marvelous. I love that. They're, they're, the most classical thing. So ever. it was just like a massive game of tag where people are running pretty much rope. Like they would, they would kind of sweep the marketplace with this this rope, uh, and and any citizen they got was uh, was was fined. Um, I I wish, and here's where I wish I knew more. So I don't know what uh, voting looked like uh, in say the uh, the New England Commonwealth uh, in the 1600s. Uh, under uh, under you know uh, the the republic in England uh, or under the un- un- development of Parliament, I just I don't know. Uh, I'm sure there were places that had compulsory voting, and I just I don't know enough about them, so uh, I, I can't I can't say anything more. I know a little bit about ancient Athens, uh, and then a, a little bit that I read uh, getting ready for this for today on modern America, uh, but even that's pretty limited. So. I just kind of stuck still on thinking like, wouldn't you, couldn't you imagine being the slave who is looking for the richest, snootiest person in the marketplace <laughs> to like rope? I mean, <laughs> Oh my gosh. That'd be the funniest thing. That's, that's gotta be so annoying to have a buy, to buy like a new, what, toga, whatever they, <laughs> like every time that you just forgot to show up. Oh. Or you woke up late. Well, uh, Coyle, maybe a, maybe a different question to take us in a slightly different direction. Uh, in terms of contemporary America, uh, I know the the argument that I'm expecting to be very common at uh, at tournaments about this is that compulsory voting will somehow enfranchise currently disenfranchised groups. Uh, what what do you make of that? Are there current groups in the American polis, if you will, that are just that are not that would go to the polls if they were required to, but they're not really represented in our current voting system. Um. I, I don't know that I can give an answer to that that I'm, I'm comfortable with uh, publicly, in, in part because this, this isn't my area, and, and in part because uh, there's kind of a lot wrapped into that. So, so when you say something like disenfranchised, right, uh, uh, obviously there, there are some people that we, we disenfranchise and we do so on purpose. Uh, so felons are, are automatically disenfranchised in most states. Uh, children, uh, people under the age of 18 are, are disenfranchised. Uh, 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 what's, gosh, what's the other category? Um, uh, the insane, uh, right? So uh, uh, people not of sound mind uh, are, are disenfranchised. So in, in one sense, no, none of those people are going to get to vote, even if there's mandatory voting. Uh, but then you have people who are uh, practically disenfranchised, right? So if a state passes a voter ID law uh, and you don't have a driver's license uh, or you've never had a driver's license or you were born before good records were kept or in a group of people for whom good records were not kept, 
Right. Uh, uh, a lot of that's going to depend on what state you're in. Uh, so Missouri actually passed some voter ID laws uh, right after we moved here. So right after I moved to Missouri, uh, they uh, they bent over backwards to uh, to try to accommodate people and, and basically said, look, we will we will do whatever it takes to get you your voter ID. Like we will we will make this happen. Not every state did that. Uh, and uh, uh, is it going to help uh, people in those states vote to say voting is compulsory? Well, again, that's the, that's going to depend on the state. Uh, and then you have a uh, disenfranchisement where maybe there's, there's just not an accessible uh, a polling location where you live. Right. Uh, uh, again, to, to pick on Missouri as an example, we ran into this in 2018, I believe in St. Louis uh, where uh, people went to vote after work uh, and the lines were, you know, blocks long to get into the polling place and polls closed at, closed at seven. Right. So uh, uh Again, is that is that going to help people in urban centers uh, where maybe there aren't enough polling locations? Uh, what does that even mean in a time of pandemic? Uh, even uh, we haven't even touched on that yet, right? Uh, uh, so again, what what do you mean by disenfranchised? Will will it help more people overcome those obstacles? Uh, if all of that is included as part of the law, then maybe. But you could also just have those laws without compulsory voting, right? You could you could have things to remove those obstacles without the compulsory voting. And we're not doing that. So I don't know that we would necessarily expect that to be included as part of the package. What's the debate term I'm looking for? Pick plan, inclusive inclusive counter plan. Uh, Oh boy. There's a, uh, I I don't know how familiar you are with the world of competitive debating, but there's not at all. Okay. (laughs) Uh, In in policy debate proper and then increasingly common in National Circuit Lincoln-Douglas debate, which is where this resolution is for, uh, there's a policy debate has the assumption that we are debating about the best way to execute a past law. And we're operating under the assumption of fiat that we have the ability to pass this law. And now the question is, how should we implement it? So an affirmative team will typically develop a plan and a common negative strategy is to uh, basically come up with a counter plan to say, my counter plan is better than your plan. And a further strategy on that road is to come up with a plan inclusive counter plan where my counter plan has your plan nestled inside of it. So if we can maintain the status quo, tweak some existing laws and increase voter access, that could be a good turn on a voter access kind of plan approach. Yeah. And I guess like, the main thing that came up in my mind during that uh, thread was maybe compulsory voting will, or, or assuming like we remove the obstacles using compulsory voting and not a, a string of other laws. Do, what is the effect of getting more people to vote that wouldn't have voted or couldn't have voted originally? What, what impacts do you see of, I guess, raising the turnout from what it is and who's voting right now? Uh, and, and here's where uh, me as a cranky old man uh, sort of uh, uh, comes out in full force. Uh, I can't imagine it will make anything better. Uh, uh, and I, I say that as someone who who genuinely believes that far too many people vote now. Uh, our, our voter turnout is way too high. I need to hear more about that. I need to hear more about that. I'm like, uh, I'm shaking the microphone because I'm like moving my seat up. Please. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think... Uh, so, so the, the, the reason for compulsory voting, uh, at least most of, most of what I've seen in, in reading up a little bit on this, uh, is the idea that it's our civic responsibility to vote on, on, on the one hand, and uh, that, uh, that we want a government that is more reflective of what the people want. Right? Those, are, those are sort of the, the two reasons for it. Uh, in terms of being more reflective of what the people want, uh, 
here's where, where I as a conservative would say, no, the people are, are, uh, don't always want the best thing, especially at any given moment, right? So uh, again, in a time of pandemic, uh, right, are, are, we really, are we really in such a position psychologically as a nation where we are well-equipped to judge what is genuinely best for us right now? I think the answer to that is probably no, uh, which is where we can say, oh, I wish we had better processes in place to guide us through this. So we're not trying to make panic decisions in, in the heat of an emergency. Uh, and, and hopefully we can, we can set something up for the next time. Uh, well, it, same, same thing with voting. Uh, you, uh, you, you want a population uh, that is, uh, is voting uh, based on sort of uh, informed, careful thought uh, about whatever the issues are and whatever the, the candidates are. And, and compulsory voting won't give us that, right? So uh, uh, on the one hand, uh, if, uh, if what we're, we're hoping for is a reflection of the popular will, well, that's not always a reflection of what's good for society. Uh, we, we wouldn't have wanted to submit, for example, a Jim Crow to popular referendum in the 1950s in the South. Uh, that, that would not have given us a, a good result, uh, even with compulsory voting, right? Even if we said every eligible voter turn out and vote, uh, that, that wouldn't have pr- produced the desired result. Um, the uh, the other side of that is that the civic the the other argument there is your, is it's your civic responsibility. Uh, I say this every election on, on social media. There there are times when it's your civic responsibility actually not to vote. Uh, if you don't know anything about the issue, if you don't know anything about the candidate, uh, don't just don't vote for it. Like don't don't pick one, and certainly don't just vote your party. Uh, uh, vote uh, uh, leave, leave that blank on the vote or stay uh, on the on the ballot or stay home from the polls. Uh, and I think there are all sorts of criteria that should go into this. So, so for example, I think if you can't even name someone running for a state level office, you probably shouldn't be voting. Uh, I, I don't mean you have to know their platform. I don't mean you have to know, uh, you don't have to be best friends with them or anything like that. Uh, you probably could be because, you know, state level offices are accessible. Uh, but if you can't, if you don't even know the name, uh, you probably ought to leave yourself out of that race and, and leave it to people who are paying more attention. Now, realistically, that's never going to sell, right? Uh, that, that's not going to uh, uh, be a selling point for the American people, but cranky old man conservative, that's, that's kind of where I fall. So you, that's, would you label that as a relatively undemocratic standpoint? Because you're arguing that democracy can lead to, yes, we're having the general will of the people express, but you're arguing that decisions need to be made based on what's best for society, which may be idealistic, but it's undemocratic. Or, or right? ideally, I'd like a better populace, right? I'd like a, uh, a populace <laughs> that's more responsible. So I'm, I'm fine with democracy as long as you have a citizen body that's worthy of it. Okay. Uh, I like that a lot. I, I'm hearing in that a lot of echoes of Aristotle, which may just be maybe a feature of having recently taught Nicomachean ethics. We're, we're just wrapping that up this week. But I'm hearing in there a lot of the echoes of where Aristotle kind of has, he has, he talks a lot about the fact that uh, people have the ability to make choices and it's the role of education to, uh, essentially, it's a very undemocratic notion of education, but he talks about Education needs to help people uh, find pleasure and pain in the right things. If we actually found pleasure in what was truly good and we found, felt pain at the, even the thought of doing evil, we would be much better people, he, he argues. And I, I, it sounds to me like you're, you're echoing some of those same kind of ideas that mass voting is great if the masses have some concept of the good that they're aiming towards in their governance. Is that, is that accurate or not? I mean, honestly, even that's, that, that's too high a bar, right? Even if I, I just want them to have thought about the good once before they go vote, right? Just, 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 just a few minutes reflecting on that uh, be- before they show up at the polls. I, I'd take that 
We should yeah, have a quiz for just, all the voters that come in. Like, what I, is the good? What is the true? Now, okay, now cast your ballot. If, if only because I'm halfway through your episode on the Republican National Convention. Uh, did you <laughs> see anything in either convention that made you think that either party, the DNC or the RNC, would agree with you on the idea of, like, voters should think about what is good before they vote? I mean, I think each of them would say we have the uh, the, the proper vision of the good. I, I, I would want to give them at least that kind of credit. Uh, I would be much more suspicious of the people, you know, the, the handful of people who actually watched at home and cheered along. Uh, I, I would question whether or not they're thinking that through. Um, but I, I think you saw in both of those a uh, competing visions of the, well, you, you certainly saw in the Republican one a vision of the good, right? Uh, uh, we saw held out a, a picture of America that was uh, uh, free and uh, uh, involved kind of the government leaving you alone. And, and I mean, a lot of that was there. Uh, the Democrats, their, their vision of the good was much more, let's just be decent, right? Let's, let's just, you know, not be Donald Trump on Twitter. Uh, uh, now, whether that's what they actually believe, well, then you have to kind of dig into their platform and say, well, is this, is this really what we can expect in a democratic administration? That's, I think, a very different question. Uh, but uh, uh, Joe Biden's acceptance speech was certainly a, a kind of vision of the good uh, that was clearly aimed at middle America, uh, whether, whether that would be reflective of a Biden administration. Again, I think you have to have that. You have to, you have to dig a little deeper on that. Well, I think that, that that makes sense. I mean, I, and I don't mean to derail our, our planned conversation for, for uh, I, I didn't watch either convention. So I was more just wanting to see what you would say to that. Not, not that I have any commentary to offer. Um, well, in terms of this whole idea of mandatory voting, I know you've hinted at some, some pot, maybe some, some harms or some implementation problems. Um, what arguments would you see in favor of this idea? Yeah, well, again, if you uh, if you genuinely think that government should be more responsive and more reflective uh, of of the you know the will of the people as a whole, right? Uh, then then yeah, yeah, this is this is a way to promote that. Uh, it's not necessarily a way to guarantee it, uh, and, and there are still. Uh, there are still other obstacles, right? Uh, we, we still have a federal system. We still have states, uh, state lines, district lines, county lines. I mean, all of those things are going to affect what the, the end result is. Uh, uh, there's still an electoral college if you're talking presidential elections. I mean, all, all of those factors are going to come into play also. But if the end goal in society is is just just the reflection of what the people want, right? And, and not not the reflection of kind of Madison's genius of the people where he's arguing for what the people would want if they were better. Uh, uh, if, if you want just kind of what the people want, then yeah, th- this, is, this is a good thing to pursue. Uh, and, uh, and, and here I think is, is maybe a better argument. If, uh, if the act of voting itself is part of what develops your civic virtue, right? If, if the act of voting does ultimately encourage you to be a better citizen, maybe not in any given election, but over the course of a life spent voting, right? Then, then there is some value for that. And, uh, uh, it's it's way outdated at this point. Uh, Frank Bryan uh, has a book called Real Democracy, which is a, a study, uh, kind of a political science study of uh, town meetings in New England, uh, where he he makes this case. And he's he's kind of gone off the rails in recent years, so I'm always a little hesitant encouraging him. He, uh, he fell in with the racist alt-right crowd uh, and uh, like, man, man, that was such a good book. And then this happened. <laughs> uh, like, oh. What are you doing, man? I can't assign your books in class anymore. But he does make the point that things like showing up at a town meeting, which of course, if you, if you want to talk about 
uh, participation, uh, just showing up at a town meeting and participating, uh, you might be wrong every time you vote, but you will still be a better citizen at the end of it. Right? You might lose every vote, you might cast the wrong ballot every time, but you're still going to be a better citizen than if you never do that. So, yeah, I, I think that's that is a fair argument. So, what I see here is because is originally, if, on the case agreeing with um, compulsory voting, saying that it should be mandatory, I originally was thinking about democracy, and then I was thinking societal welfare because I was going to try to draw the connection. Like, currently, there's low turnout. Compulsory voting has been proven to improve turnout. That's a given. Like there's evidence from nearly every country that has compulsory voting that there's better turnout with compulsory voting. And then the most difficult part, proving that that turnout by raising, you know, including more voices leads to better societal well-being. And I guess like for first, I mean, once you, that's like a hard link to tie, but I'm sure a lot of people will attempt they, to tie That it. will be a pretty that's standard be a popular approach. One. Yeah. But, but if you, if your values democracy, and you're saying that we need to increase the amount of voices in the country, like we need the general will of the people best expressed because, well, it's democracy. Democracy is the value. Like if you make that case that democracy is the most valuable thing, like as in like that's the value in the LD debate, I mean, then your I, opponent has to argue against democracy instead of. True. I would probably want to make your value criterion governmental legitimacy at that point. Yes. And then the the – uh, I was saying, Coyle, as you were describing that, it, I, I, I'm assuming Rousseau is the is the guy for for this particular view. That like Rousseau as the the general will of the people, or, or sort of the uh, vox populi, vox dei sort of idea, and the, the the voice of the people expressing the will of God through the vote. That's that's. Am I correct? And that's that's Rousseau, right? I, it is. It is Rousseau. I don't know how many people today who argue for the compulsory voter are reading Rousseau and saying yes, uh, but uh, Rousseau does does uh, argue that. Now, well, we, we don't need to get in the weeds of Rousseau. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're, you're certainly right that if, uh, if a government reflective of the people is the good end you're looking for, right, then this is a tool towards that end. Uh, it's, it's not going to be a perfect tool. So uh, I, I was actually teaching this in my presidency class. Uh, the election where we have had the highest voter turnout uh, ever was the uh, 1876 uh, presidential election where something like 84% voter turnout. Uh, I mean, it was, it was insane and it failed to pick a president. Uh, it, it didn't work. Uh, by, by the time they were done throwing out, you know, stuffed ballot boxes and uh, re-enfranchising uh, uh, freed slaves who had been disenfranchised uh, uh, by, uh, uh, by regional Democrats uh, and uh, uh, Democrats throwing out Republican cheating. I mean, by the time they're done with all of that, uh, the, the whole thing is just this giant mess. Uh, so it, it doesn't necessarily give you any functional government, at least based on our one experience of massive, massive voter turnout. Uh, but it might, you know. Oh. Maybe on a uh, maybe if you chuck everything serious we just said and decide to just run a really fun case, you could always uh, set up a Rousseauian framework and then run Parks and Rec arguments. Oh man, you sound like one of those Harvard LD debaters. Someone ran oh what was it? Someone ran a TikTok case where they argued that whoever could do Renegades the best should win the round. They lost not because they couldn't do Renegades the best. But I don't even know if you know what that is. I don't. Oh, I've, I've, never mind. The, the, the couple lost. TikToks I've watched don't make me want to watch more. Exactly. I've, I am intrigued by Walmart trying to buy TikTok and Trump trying to ban TikTok, both happening at the same time. But that's another. That's a whole other. That is. Let's let's um, let's get to a different question. Um, uh, Coyle, I'm curious about your thoughts on this one. Does. Um, does this resolution call for the violation of conscience 
Is there a is there a right to not vote that this would require the violation of? Yeah, and and it would it would depend, on, and maybe this is more detailed than than you want to go into in a, in a in an LD debate. But it would it would depend on kind of the nature of the resolution. Like if I go to the polls and take a ballot and you know get get passed in by the the little old ladies working at the polling station and dump my empty ballot in the bin, have I have I met the legal criteria? Am I going to be punished for? You know, uh, uh, or if I leave, you know, if I if I vote for president and then leave everything else blank, right? Uh, uh, have have I uh, have I have I done my my public? Have I have I served my public responsibility? Uh, again, that it, it depends on how strict it is and and what what's being required. So, I, I would say the the mere requirement that I go to the polls on election day and get a ballot and drop something into the bin, eh, probably not a violation of conscience. That's probably fine. Uh, if you wanted to be stricter than that, uh, and this is, this is all just my opinion, right? Uh, this is t- which I'm going to take that for what it's worth. Uh, if you wanted to be stricter than that and be like, no, you, you must vote on everything on the ballot. Uh, there you're probably getting into, uh, 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 you know, more of a violation of conscience territory, uh, especially if, if you don't allow for write-ins, right? Because I'm, I'm just going to write Mickey Mouse in every line for every office I don't know anything about. Uh, and uh, again, now you're implying someone's going to be there checking. I mean, there, there are all sorts of things going into that logistically. I brought this up. I told one of our my coworkers at, at Thales last week that we were working on this resolution. That was the first thing she thought of was that if she had to go vote, she would write in the worst imaginable candidate names. I mean, we would have Bodie McBoatface winning Senate election <laughs> in the United States real fast. Uh, we uh well, that's probably not appropriate for your audience. I mean, we we had a, a candidate in Missouri in the last presidential election change his name. Uh, to to something crude, uh, so that he. Uh, I don't know who you're talking about. Wait, I, I yes. Think um, who, 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 am I going to regret this? No, I don't know if it was from Missouri, but there was there was D's nuts for president. Yeah, there you oh, go. I've heard that. Yeah, that's, that's that was, was for real. That was like a real guy. He really yeah. did that. Wasn't he 18? Was he from Missouri? <laughs> I I believe he was up in uh, up in Columbia, Missouri. I think. Now here, I might um, be I might be repeating a student rumor here. So maybe maybe. Uh, that's not but you can turn that into a great negative argument. You can be like the D's nuts K. The D- <laughs> I'm getting no to clip that. <laughs> Please don't. I do like my job. Okay. Uh, we're, we're probably coming in pretty close to time. Uh, as we, we need to wrap, be in wrapping this up. Uh, Coyle, what are your thoughts on the upcoming election? I mean, it is pass. Uh, a mess? No, Pass. Oh, pass. Yeah. You don't want to make a potential prediction on voter turnout. I, I'm not asking you to predict the win. I just like, do you think people actually care? I, I think it's going to peter out. So I think the people who care, care a lot, like a lot, a lot. And I think that nobody's mind has been changed about anything over the last four years, but I, I wouldn't pretend to try to predict anything because all of my predictions in 2016 were wrong. And uh, I've, I've learned not to predict and I, I stand firmly on that. So one of the most consistent pieces of debate advice I've given to Ethan and lots of other students is that don't lean heavily on predictive models for your, your warrant. Uh, because at that point you're really, you're, you're just predicting the future and that, that doesn't work. Like it, it, the more you can lean on specific occurrences of what really occurred, you're going to be a much stronger base Agreed. for evidence. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, 
polls polls can be accurate, but they can be inaccurate. And yeah, so I I, I have no predictions for anything for for twenty twenty. Uh, I mean, we're still trying to sort out twenty sixteen. So that that's uh, <laughs> there's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> Uh, well, Coyle, thank you so much for coming on the show today to, uh, to, to have a conversation with us. I, I really appreciate getting to lean on some of your expertise and, and, and your thoughts uh, as we are as we're talking about this. Any any last words that you would leave with us? No, I, I appreciate you guys having me on. I, I wish you could have had like a real elections expert on, <laughs> but uh, uh, instead of just uh, just the, uh, the the cranky old man on his porch. I mean, that's uh, that, that's kind of. Uh, uh, well, oh, uh, one last thought, uh, if only because I'm now, uh, I, I have a, a role in college advising uh, at, at my school. Uh, are there any reasons that students from the Raleigh, North Carolina area should consider uh, looking at Southwest Baptist University? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, so, so I, think, I think we're a fine school. Uh, I know next to nothing about Baptist schools in North Carolina. I assume there are some. Uh, and. I, I wouldn't want to uh, I wouldn't want to try to poach students from North Carolina, and I can I can feel administrators hovering over me right now, saying "poach them, poach them." <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of it. I mean, as as with any college, so my my uh, my advice to students, and I am not an administrator, so I can I can give this sort of thing is is always first: Do you need to go to college? Think about that. Think seriously about that. And if the answer is no go into the workforce, you know, save yourself four years of, uh, of, of college and go straight into the workforce. And if you still want to do college, uh, do it with a full-time job and just do it part-time and pay your way through without accruing a bunch of debt. Uh, if you, if you do need to go to college, then, uh, if you do want to go to college or need to go to college, uh, figure out what you want to do, uh, measure up, uh, uh, find, you know, what, what's the best school that you're going to be able to afford, uh, based on your resources, based on your SAT. And are you guys SAT or ACT country? Uh, really SAT though, the, the current wisdom is both, but yeah. at least our students, probably 30 of the 40 are taking just the SAT. Right. So, so measure, measure kind of SAT scores versus, uh, uh, what you think your own resources will be and cost of school and all of that. Uh, and then, and then pick your school based on all of that information. I think using that information there, there are some very good programs at SBU. Uh, so, so yes, anyone is free to send me an email and I can, uh, I can pass you on to our admissions people who know way more about that than I do. I, I know about our program, our department, and, uh, and that's, that's pretty much it. But, uh, uh, there, there are some things I think we, we do really, really well. Uh, and, and, uh, yeah. So in, in that sense, yes. Um, but, uh, but again, always that first question is, do you really need college or are you just going to be racking up four years worth of debt? That, that's an important question. Uh, that is a very important question. Those are some wise words and some wise questions. Uh, well, Coyle, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, no, thanks for having me. If, uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with us about with feedback about this episode or wants us to send us anything to pass on to, uh, to Coyle, how can they get in touch with us? Yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, please do so at whatstheres at gmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at whatstheres underscore or go to our website at www.whatstheres.com. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.